The fourth chapter of Revelation. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be back here speaking to you again. Um, I have the task of trying to preach the rest of the book of Revelation. Believe me, I prayed for the second coming before this weekend, and it didn't happen, so here I am. Uh, But let's open with prayer, and then uh, we'll uh, spend some time looking at the rest of this unique book. Father, we are grateful for the privilege, uh, but uh, something we also recognize is a great responsibility to be able to handle and and, uh, think about and talk about what we confess is nothing less than your very revelation to us, your very word and your very communication. And so we do not take that lightly in uh, the way we talk about it and think about it and study it, uh, but also in the way we uh, try to live it out in our lives. Uh, So I pray this morning that we would sense your presence with us as we think about your word, and Father, that your spirit would convince us of its truthfulness and convict us of areas where we need to uh, conform our lives to uh, match up and to be consistent with what we find in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you're like me, but I often look at my life and ask myself, what am I doing? It seems like the older I get, the more I ask that question. And I don't know about you, I, I need to know that, that 
I belong to something larger and something greater. I need to know that, that I belong, that my life belongs to a bigger story than just what is going on in my own individual story. Uh, we, we wake up in the morning and we go to work and we come home and we eat and we get up and do it again the next day. And then we go to church on weekends and we, uh, we, we carry on our busy schedules and we try to live our lives out as, in a way that's pleasing to God as Christians and we try to evangelize our neighbors and friends and things like that. Uh, but I still wonder... How does this all fit within a larger story? I need to know that I belong to something bigger. I need to know that, that there's a, a larger story that gives meaning and purpose to my own individual story. The book of Revelation does that. The book of Revelation provides us with a story of what God is doing in the world, a, a, a story about where it is headed and how my story needs to merge with it. And so today we want to look at Revelation 4 through 22 and the story that it tells. Uh, the other day, uh, actually a couple times this week, I sat down and with my computer and went on Google Earth. Some of you have probably done this. And I started looking at some of the places where I used to live previously. And uh, I did live in Boston area for eight years. And I, I still can't stand the Patriots. I'm sorry if you're a Patriots fan, but uh, people ask me that when they find out I lived in Boston. I, I, anyway, uh, I've lived in several places, and I went to Google Earth and started looking at. And, and as you know, you can uh, that little icon or whatever in the right-hand bottom corner. You can zoom in or zoom out, and I could zoom in and see the exact houses. You could get a street-side view, but then you could zoom back out and see the entire area and the entire state. And what we're going to do today is, is zoom out and look at the entire landscape. Revelation, you can zoom in and look at individual parts, and we might do a little bit of that. Uh, but uh, we'll mainly do that in the next several weeks uh, as, as you look, uh, your pastors take you through the book of Revelation. But today we want to zoom way out and look at the whole entire landscape of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is... Uh, actually a prophecy in the form of a vision that John had that he sends to seven churches that uh, were in Asia Minor, in Western Asia Minor, that would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, back in September when I talked a little bit about the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation is not some far distant prophecy about events that are going to take place in the 21st century that the readers of Revelation had no idea what John was talking about. If you remember, and if you uh, uh, were here in the, the last several week, a couple months where uh, we worked through Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven messages of the seven churches, you saw that those churches were facing, some of them, very serious situations and very serious crises in the life of the churches. Five of the churches were in danger of so compromising their faith and losing their love for Jesus Christ that they were in danger of being judged. Only two of the churches were, were facing some kind of persecution and opposition and pressure uh, from, uh, from the authorities of those cities because of their faithfulness. 
And so Revelation was meant to try to help these churches to see their situation in a new light so that they could respond appropriately. Revelation was meant to meet the needs of these seven churches in the first century. They needed, the, they needed warning. They needed the exhortation that Revelation brings. They needed, at least two of the churches needed comfort. They needed to be able to navigate life under this pagan Roman empire that was calling for their allegiance and their obedience, even their worship. And I wonder, how would, a, how would a vision of what's going on in the 21st century help them? I mean, it, it, it would jaunt to seven churches in Asia Minor that are wondering, uh, is it worth it to, to uh, maintain our witness for Jesus Christ, even in, uh, to suffer the consequences for that? Should we go ahead and try to worship Caesar, but also worship Jesus Christ? What good would it do to, for John to say, let me show you what's going to happen in the 21st century? And by the way, you're not going to understand it anyway, but I'll tell you. And no, revelation must be something that they could understand. It must be something that would help them face what was going on in the pagan environment, in this Roman empire that they found themselves in, uh, an empire that was a threat to them, an empire that called for their allegiance. It must say something that they can understand. In fact, at the very end of the book, John is told not to seal up the book in chapter 22. In the first century, to seal up a book was to keep or hide its contents for a future generation. And John is told, don't seal this book up because the time is at hand. This is a message for the readers. This is something that will help them to face their situation in the first century, living under the shadow of the Roman Empire. I can't impress that on you enough. When you read the book, to always ask yourself, what would John and his first century readers have understood when they read this book? Revelation 4 through 22 then tells a story. It tells a story to the first century readers, and it tells a story to us today. And it's important to understand how it relates to chapter 2 and 3, the, the uh, chapters that contain the messages of the seven churches. Sometimes we think that uh, chapter, the, the events of chapter 2 and 3 happen in the first century, and then chapter 4 through 22 happens a long time after that. Actually, it's just the opposite. I'm convinced that chapter 4 through 22, this vision of, of all these beasts and, and fire and brimstone and judgment and, 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 and all these things, uh, the vision of chapter 4 through 22 is basically saying the same thing that John said in chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2 and 3 are sort of the, the in-your-face, the more direct evaluation of what's going on in the church, the, the criticism, the, the exhortation, the comfort for at least two of the churches. And then it's as if John says, now let me show you in a different way. Let me tell you again, but let me show you through a vision what's going on in your churches in chapter 2 and 3. So chapter 4 through 22 is just another look at what John has already said in chapter 2 and 3. It, it, it's, it's sort of like chapter 2 and 3 would be uh, someone pounding out a tune on a piano, 
And then chapter 4 through 22 is playing that, exa- that exact same tune with a full orchestra. So what is going on in chapter 4 through 22? What story does it tell? The story begins in chapter 4 and 5 with God seated on his throne and the lamb as well. A lot of the songs that we sang this morning that Billy led us through have lyrics and words. And as Billy said, a lot of our worship songs and our older hymns as well as our newer songs uh, take their lyrics and their, their uh, uh, words right out of, their language right out of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Because Revelation 4 and 5 is a vision of God seated on the throne and the Lamb on the throne, but all of heaven gathers around and worships God and the Lamb in unending praise and worship. If you read carefully through chapter 4 and 5, and as you listen to chapter 4 read, you notice that one of the keys in these chapters are the, the one of the keys is the, the, the hymns or songs that are sung by various heavenly beings. And they praise God because he is the creator of all things. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. And they praise the Lamb because the Lamb is also worthy of worship, and he is the one who comes to redeem this creation, a creation that has been ruined and wrecked by sin. The throne of God and the Lamb stand at the center of heaven, and and all of heaven is arranged in order around the throne, and, and they acknowledge and worship God. They acknowledge his sovereignty, Heaven is a place where God's will is done, where his sovereignty is perfectly acknowledged, where his holiness is perfectly reflected. In contrast to the chaos on earth that's about to take place in the rest of the book of Revelation, heaven is a place of order and beauty and serenity. As God's sovereignty, his will is perfectly realized and acknowledged. Now, that raises a problem. That's not the case on earth. Earth, according to the rest of the book of Revelation, earth is a place where God's sovereignty is not acknowledged. It's a place where God's rule and reign is contested. It's a place where God's reign and rule is rejected, a place where God's will is not done. It's a place of chaos and moral disorder where God's holiness is not reflected. It's a place where ungodly, oppressive, idolatrous empires, such as the Roman Empire in the first century and any other empire that follows suit up to the present day, a place where such empires rule the world. If you don't believe that's the case even today, read the morning newspaper or watch the evening news. Earth is a place where there is political chaos, even in the U.S. and the rest of the world. A place of uncertain markets. A place of rioting and murder and moral chaos and disorder. Nations struggling for power. Fear of terrorist attacks. Where a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, is in Turkey in prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ and because of he preaches the, preached the gospel. What is going on on earth contradicts the reality that takes place in heaven. 
So the question that Revelation raises after you read chapter 4 and 5 is, how does the scene in heaven in chapter 4 and 5 eventually become a reality on earth? How does this scene in chapter 4 and 5 in heaven where God's sovereignty is perfectly acknowledged, where his holiness is reflected, where God's will is done, where he rules over all things, where everyone worships and acknowledges God as the creator of all things, how does that eventually take place on an earth that rejects that and that resists that and that contests that? That's what the story of Revelation is about. And that's where chapter 21 and 22 comes in, if I can skip to the end of the book. Chapter 21 and 22 is John's vision of a new creation, where where, uh, chapter 4 and 5 now become a reality on earth. Chapter 21, John says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I would emphasize that part, a new earth. Did did you know the destiny of God's people is not to go to heaven? I don't know about you, but my goal is not to go to heaven someday. Revelation ends with God's people on a new earth, the way that God intended it in the first place. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we find that all of creation now worships God God's sovereignty is recognized, his rule is recognized, God is worshipped, God's throne and the Lamb's throne is now not in heaven, but it's the center of the new creation, and and now there's order and beauty, and, and, and God's holiness and his sovereignty is reflected throughout all creation, just as it was in chapter four and five. In a way... Revelation could be seen, the whole chapter 4 through 25 could almost be seen as sort of a commentary on the Lord's Prayer from the Matthew chapter 6. Uh, if you remember in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and, and he begins by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I, when I was a kid, I memorized it in the King James Version, so that's how I still say it, or at least maybe it's a combination of things. But, but uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 4 through 5 is as it is in heaven part of of the Lord's Prayer. Heaven is a place where God's will is done, where his kingdom, his rule, his sovereignty is recognized. But the Lord's Prayer is that that takes place on earth, in heaven as it is on, on earth as it is in heaven. Chapter 21 and 22 is the on earth part of the Lord's Prayer. So revelation, in a sense, is an answer to the Lord's prayer. How is God's will and his kingdom in heaven finally recognize and finally take place on earth? That's what the book of Revelation is about. Those are the two bookends, chapter 4 and 5 and 21 and 22. But what about everything in between, chapter 6 through 20? Basically, these chapters tell us, how do we get from point A to point B? Or or how does chapter 4 through 5 eventually become a reality in chapter 21 and 22? How does God's kingdom and his rule and his holiness 
and his will that is recognized perfectly in heaven, how does that eventually come to earth in chapter 21 and 22? Chapter 6 through 20, the part that's sandwiched in between 4 and 5 and 21 and 22 tells that story. How do we get from 4 and 5 to 21 and 22? Now, we could say a lot, uh, but what I want to simply do is, is focus on two main themes that, that wind their way throughout chapter 6 through 20 that tell us how is it that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? How does God's kingdom come to earth as it already is in heaven? Of course, chapter 5 tells us at the heart of God's plan for accomplishing that is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. His death on the cross where he redeems creation, where he redeems his people, where he redeems all things. But one of the themes uh, as far as how God does that is the theme of judgment. Revelation tells us God is already pouring out his judgment on a world that rejects him, that contests him, that that refuses to acknowledge his will and his sovereignty, that refuses to reflect his holiness. After chapter 4 and 5, God is not seen as simply enjoying things up in heaven while we go on our merry way down on earth and we try to do the best we can. And otherwise, God is relatively unconcerned with what's going on. And things kind of go out of control. And in the ninth inning, God finally intervenes in chapter 20 and 21 and and brings about his kingdom. Instead, Revelation tells us, no, God is already active in bringing about his plan, in establishing his will on earth. First of all, through his son, Jesus Christ, chapter 5. The lamb who is on the throne, who has redeemed humanity and who has redeemed creation. But second, God is also active through his judgment. God is already pouring out his judgment on an earth that rejects him, on on a world, on a system that sets itself up as God, that demands our allegiance, that, that is idolatrous and contests God's will and sovereignty. Much of the rest of Revelation revolves around three sets of seven. Uh, in chapter 6, there's seven seals, uh, and later on, uh, chapter 8 and 9, there's seven trumpets, and then in chapter 16, there are seven bowls. And these are, these are a s- three series of judgments that God pours out upon the earth. Uh, you'll notice, too, when you read these sections that uh, we won't go through and look at them, but with each set of seven, uh, there's an increasing intensity. The first seven, I think, harm like a fourth of the earth. The next set harm a third or a half of the earth. And finally, the bowls in chapter 16, there's no limit. What is going on is it's as, it's as if God is, is turning up the volume to warn humanity, not only that he's already judging those who refuse to acknowledge him, but, but he's turning up the volume to warn humanity of a future judgment. I think these three sets of seven are increasingly anticipating the fact that there's going to be a final judgment when God will, God will eradicate all evil. God will redeem all creation to himself. God will one day establish his rightful rule on earth. And that means getting rid of 
and judging anything that would contest it, anything that would contradict that. And these seals and trumpets and bowls are meant to anticipate that. They're, they're sort of advanced warning shots to warn people with a, a sort of a loud megaphone of a judgment that's yet to come so that people will repent, so that people will come under God's rule now, so that people will reflect God's will and God's holiness. If anywhere in the book of Revelation we need to be careful or beware of trying to read these seals and trumpets and bowls in light of what's going on in our modern day. I think I've said before, often we read Revelation with the book of Revelation in one hand and the morning news in the other, and we start matching things up and saying, oh, this must refer to this. Remember, the seals, trumpets, and bowls must still be something that John and his readers would have understood. And I'm convinced the seals, trumpets, and bowls were already beginning to take place in John's day. God was already pouring out his judgment on a wicked, evil empire that that contested God's rule, that refused to acknowledge God's sovereignty, that set itself up as God, the Roman Empire. Remember, too, Revelation primarily communicates in symbols. So these judgments in the seals and trumpets and bowls are are not literal scientific descriptions of what the judgment's going to look like. They're using symbols and images that the readers would have been familiar with. For example, if you read carefully the trumpets and bowls in chapter 8 and 9 and chapter 16, I had someone come up last night and say, uh, uh, as soon as you said that, I started remembering where I'd heard these things before. That is... The trumpets and bold judgments recall the Exodus plagues. And so it's as if John wants you to read those sections and and recall in the same way that God judged a wicked, idolatrous, evil empire. So God is is doing it again and will continue to do it until he returns. I'm really not sure what some of these, you start reading about the, the locusts and some of these other things. I'm not exactly sure what John has in mind sometimes. But I'm quite sure his readers and he knew what he was talking about. But maybe that's the point. Maybe we're not, trying to, we're not supposed to figure out all these details. Instead, John wants us instead to, to be confident that God is indeed judging, whatever that might look like or whatever that looks like, and that, that God is, is judging in a way that anticipates the fact that one day he will pour out his judgment and remove everything that is a hindrance to the full enjoyment of his sovereignty, his, his love, his holiness, his presence with his people. It's possible that uh, we should read these in the same way we read Romans chapter 1. If you remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven. And then in chapter, uh, against those who suppress the truth of God. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter and he tells us, how is the wrath of God being poured out? Three or four times he repeats, and God gave them over, and God handed them over. 
Maybe that's how we're to read some of these judgments in Revelation. Whatever they look like, precisely, maybe John's point is, in the first century and even today, God's judgment is being poured out by simply handing the world over to its own decisions. Saying, if, if you want to be oppressive, if you want injustice, if you want murder, if you want evil and wickedness and sin, then you can have it, and you can have the consequences. Almost as a, a foretaste of what the final judgment will look like, life apart from God's presence. So God is already judging to prepare for the day when he's, his kingdom will arrive in its fullness. And I'm convinced for the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, at least for five of them, they would read these judgments not as a comfort that somehow God's going to judge all these foreign. No, they would read it as aimed at them. These judgments are a call to the church to get our lives in order lest we find ourselves on the wrong end of things. But they're a reminder that, that God is already at work establishing his kingdom. God is already at work to make the Lord's prayer a reality. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, the rest of Revelation, just quickly, uh, if you, especially when you jump to 17 and 18 where you read about Babylon, the fall of Babylon, and then chapter 19, the rider on the white horse, uh, basically what's going on is you find a series of removal scenes, of judgment scenes, where God comes and he's beginning to remove everything that stands in the way of the full realization of his kingdom. So Babylon is removed in chapter 18 and 19. The nations that refuse to acknowledge God's sovereignty are removed. The, 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 the beasts are removed that you read about in chapter 12 and 13. Finally, everything is removed at the end of 20 so that the only thing left is the establishment of a new creation where God rules over all things. The second theme, besides judgment, the second theme that I find going on is in the midst of all this, in the midst of the, the chaos and the evil and the wickedness that one finds, uh, and even in the midst of God's judgment, what is the church supposed to be doing? What are God's people supposed to be doing? Revelation answers that question by saying the church is supposed to maintain a faithful witness. How will God's kingdom come to earth? Part of that is through the witness of the people of God. Through their faithful witness, despite the consequences, even if it meant death, which for many Christians, not so much in the first century, but later centuries, it did and continues to today. The church is to maintain its faithful witness as the people of God. One of the chapters that makes us clear is, is chapter 11 of Revelation, uh, a chapter where we read of a story of two witnesses, and these two witnesses go out and they do just that. They, they, they witness to the unbelieving world, and eventually they are put to death. 
What's going on in this chapter? In, in my opinion, these two witnesses probably are not meant to stand for two literal individuals that somehow will rise up in the end times. But these two witnesses signify or symbolize the entire witnessing church. It's almost as if they are telling us, what is the church supposed to be doing? The two witnesses symbolize the church and tell us they are to witness. They are to witness to the reality of God's sovereignty and, and who God is and the reality of the Lamb and his redemption and his sacrifice for the sins of all people. That's what they're to witness to from chapter 4 and 5. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, John already tells us who these two witnesses are. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, John says that he saw a lampstand, and the lampstand symbolizes or represents the entire church, or especially the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. Now, John identifies these two witnesses as the two lampstands. The lampstands, which he already told us in one chapter 1, verse 20, is the church. So these two witnesses symbolize the entire witnessing church. An example of how that might, uh, we might understand that is, uh, there's a, I think I have a picture of Uncle Sam. You look at this, and most of us know what this stands for. If you were to go to Washington, D.C., unless there's a parade or something, you would not expect to go into the White House and meet this person in real life. No, you know that Uncle Sam stands for what? Yeah, basically the United States or the United States government. You know that there's no literal Uncle Sam walking around somewhere. Instead, he symbolizes or represents something. That's what the two witnesses are doing, I'm convinced. The readers of the Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches, <clears throat> they would have read this and understood that chapter 11 is not so much a prediction of something that's going to take place way off in the future in the end times, but chapter 11 was more of a call to the church to tell them, here's what you should be doing. In a world that rejects God and his sovereignty, in a world that contests God's rule, and, and, and in a world full of oppression and evil and, and, and rioting and murder and terrorist attacks and threats of all kinds of things, what is the church supposed to be doing? Maintaining its faithful witness. Chapter 12 and 13 go on and, and tell us more about what this looks like. In fact, chapter 12 takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to tell us that the reason this is necessary is because God's intention in Genesis 1 and 2 was to create, to, to create all things as a place for his people to live and a place where God would dwell with them. That's, that's the picture you get in Genesis 1 and 2. God is creating an environment for his people to live in, and he intends to dwell with them. And he gives Adam and Eve the responsibility to rule over all things, to represent God's sovereignty, to spread God's rule and presence throughout all creation. Yet in chapter 3, the serpent, Satan himself, kind of throws a wrench in the works. And sin enters the world and ruins that. And ruins God's intention for his people. 
And so the story of the Bible is not, God doesn't look at creation and say, oh, that didn't work, so let me try plan B. No, God's intention is to redeem his creation, to restore things the way they were in Genesis 1 and 2, where, where God's sovereignty was acknowledged over all creation, where God dwelled with his people. That's exactly where 21 and 22 end up. But in chapter 12 and 13, we're told that in the meantime, Satan will continue to wreak havoc on, uh, uh, on this world. Satan will continue to contest God's rule. The true source of opposition to God and his rule, the true source of, 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 of uh, resisting God's and contesting God's sovereignty and his holiness is ultimately Satan himself, Revelation chapter 12. And chapter 13 then tells us he carries it out through human beings. I'm convinced that if you were a reader in the first century and you would have read Revelation 13, the story of those two beasts, you would have identified it with the Roman Empire. But John's point is, whatever, whenever we find nations and systems and institutions that reject God's rule, that oppose God's rule and sovereignty, that set themselves up as God. Chapter 13. Behind that ultimately lies the deceiver from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's Revelation 12. And God's intention is to one day defeat that and establish his rule over all things. And part of the way he does that is through the witnessing church, Revelation chapter 11. That's part of the way that heaven comes down to earth. That's part of the way that God's sovereignty that's acknowledged in heaven, chapter 4 and 5, eventually becomes a reality in earth through God's people who witness to that reality. So what is left? How do you become part of this story of Revelation 4 through 22, where God's sovereignty is acknowledged in heaven in chapter 4 and 5, and it, it, which will eventually take place on earth, chapter 21 and 22, in a new creation? How do you become part of that story? Let me give you three takeaways from the entire book of Revelation. Number one, Revelation calls us to worship God. Why did you come here this morning? Maybe you came because that's what you do on Sundays. Or maybe you came because your parents made you come. Or maybe you came because you're just interested to find out about Revelation. Or for whatever reason, you're here. But why did you come? The reason we come to worship according to Revelation is we come to acknowledge the sovereignty of the Almighty Creator. We come to acknowledge the fact that God is worthy of our worship because he is the sovereign ruler of all things and because he has now sent his son, the lamb, Jesus Christ, to redeem all things. But more importantly than that, we also, when we come to worship, we join in heaven in acknowledging God's sovereignty. When we sit here and worship, in a sense, we are reflecting and joining in with the perfect worship that takes place in heaven, according to Revelation 4 and 5. 
When we worship, we acknowledge who is truly at the center of the universe. In a world with all kinds of competing voices that call for our allegiance, revelation has a way. Worship, worship has a way of helping us to refocus on the center, on what is the true reality, on who is really worthy of our worship on the true object of our allegiance in a world that rejects and contests that. When you go out and live in the world, you, you're in the midst of a, 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 a world that is hostile to and refuses to acknowledge God is the creator of all things. When you come here to worship, it helps reorient you to the true reality. And when you do so, you join heaven in chapter 4 and 5, in acknowledging God's sovereignty. And when you do that, a little bit of heaven comes down to earth. Revelation calls us to worship. Second, Revelation calls us to reflect the values of God's kingdom. In a world that contradicts God's rule and his sovereignty, in a world that promotes injustice and oppression and sin and evil, God's people are meant to reflect the values of God's kingdom that is realized in heaven but is yet to come on earth. People should be able to see that right now in your lives. People should be able to look at your life and mine and see a foretaste of the new creation. People should be able to look at Waterstone Church and see a glimpse of life in the new creation where God rules over all things, where there's justice, where there's love, where there's beauty, where there's holiness. Revelation calls us to reflect the values of the kingdom. In advance of that day when God will make all things new, people should be able to look at us as a call a call for our worship, a call for our uh, complete our obedience, a call to reflect the values of the kingdom that is realized in heaven that one day you will bring to earth. Father, I pray that as we think about the book of Revelation, that we will be convinced and convicted to make our stories be part of its story. We pray this in Jesus' name.